The following conversation is possibly one of the most inspiring conversations I've ever had. The gentleman we have on the podcast today is called Mike Stevenson. He went from being homeless, on the brink of suicide, to founding a multi-million pound business. And I got bullied a lot. I mean, I used to get dragged and, you know, kicked to pieces. Once you're out in the streets, it's hard. It was really challenging because the cold, uh, the Met Police sometimes booted you in the ribs when you were asleep. I once got thrown down the stairs when I was asleep. You've got to think creatively, but we get creativity almost rubbed out of us. And I think that's a tragedy. So, so do you think sleeping in the streets in essence was a blessing and a curse because you learnt yeah. so many imperative skills? And I've brought people back from the brink of suicide. What are your tips to help people build their confidence? How, how would you think that people could gain others' respect in business? I mean, everyone coming out of school should be a disruptor. Yeah, yeah. You know, we need disruptors. We need leaders who are disruptors. What do you think are the three main lessons that you've learned in marketing? How can someone present themselves to other people better? Well, I think that the mistake people make when they teach public speaking is... If you want to learn about effective communication, if you want to learn about business, but most of all, you want to learn about how to be a disruptor, then this is the podcast for you. My name is Harrison Brown, and this is the Intimind Podcast. If you're watching or listening, I hope this helps. So Mike, when I was doing my research on you, I was quite astounded actually to see where you came from and where you're going and have gone from the streets, depression, homelessness, all the way to Thinktastic, business, the wise group, all of these incredible stuff. Take me back to the early days. Talk me through what makes you, you. How was school for you? I hated it. <laughs> I mean, I cannot, I cannot uh, express it um, in a way that does it justice. But I can say I hated it from the minute I started primary school mm. um, to that glorious moment when I was kicked out. Um, and I can't, I just don't know why. I've recently been diagnosed as very high on the ADHD spectrum, right, which might explain uh, quite a lot of it because it wasn't an available condition when I was at school. But it, it the teachers didn't like me. I don't know why. I wasn't especially bad. I certainly wasn't stupid, but I just could not listen to those system drones talking, you know, um, from nine in the morning till four in the afternoon. I hated it every moment. Mm. Did you think that ADHD was a gift or a curse when you were in school? Well, I didn't know. You, of course, you know, when you didn't have all these available conditions. Yeah. Um, the truth is that you just felt different. Mm. So being different in that sense gave you anxiety. I was also different in that my mother was Lebanese. And, you know, so I, I had this kind of Mediterranean tint. Um, and, and we'd lived in Pakistan for three years. You know, when I was from the age of three and a half to six and a half. 
and so I'd lived a bit of a life outside the the bubble of Scotland, and uh, so I just felt different, and I got bullied a lot. I mean, I used to get dragged and you know kicked to pieces by the same gang, you know, week after week after week until one day. I decided to go for them, and that changed the relationship completely. Mm. Um, but I, it was a gift in the sense that I sang in a band. I was captivated by music. I mean, the music at the time was the Yardbirds and the Beatles and the Stones. I mean, I can't tell you how exciting that was to me at the time. And uh, so I sang in this band, and I was a wild performer. I really was just, you know, I was uh, I was the embodiment of the devil on stage, you know, <laughs> swinging the microphone stand around and 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 I invited my mother once to come and see me and 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 she was astonished mm. that this was the same son that she'd you know nurtured over many years and there was was I on stage so it was about performance mm. and at school I never got the chance. You know, I, got, I remember in primary school, I, I was asked to sing Tit Willow as a solo, you know, from the Mikado. Mm. And I thought, why? <laughs> anyway, I, I stood on stage and, and I was pushed on stage. Mm. And just at the point that I started singing, with a sort of faltering voice, I peed on myself. Mm. So there was a pool of, you know, liquid on the stage and the teacher came up with a mop just to humiliate me. Um, so being told to do something, no. Uh, taking the opportunity um, to prove myself, yes. So I loved performing on stage, which has probably, um, you know, been with me all my life. I think that's a quite a common trait amongst mm. people with ADHD. I have ADHD and we've uh, yes. had quite a few people on the podcast with ADHD. If they are told to do something they don't want to do, mm. you will never, they're the most stubborn people, you'll never get them to do it because they're always yeah. distracted by the next thing. Yeah. However, if they choose to do it and they're genuinely motivated to do it, they'll hyper-focus Absolutely. beyond belief. Yes. Take me back to, the, to, to that then. So you were bullied in part, was it for what happened on stage? Um, no, because it started much earlier than that. I was bullied just because I was wee. And I looked different. Uh, and I used to, you know, I almost got used to the kickings. Because they did. They would stick the boot in. They would stick the head in. Um, I had asthma as well, quite bad asthma. So I couldn't run. So if anyone did, I remember being with a group of guys and someone lobbed a stone through a window, right? And they all ran off. And there was me. I was caught by the ear. Mm. But the guy that ran out and taken to the police station. So I was crippled with this asthma. It was really bad. So I couldn't run away. I couldn't get away. And they knew they just had to punch me in the stomach for me to lose all my capacity to breathe. Mm. So I was very vulnerable. Um, and the stage stuff was, what a release. I mean, it was just like finding this personality that had hidden itself in a corner. And, you know, all of a sudden I, I had a different persona in Kirkcaldy, which is where I went to school. Do you think, l looking back on your kind of schooling, 
this is something that I ask a lot of uh, a lot Hi. of people that, that that are bullied or that have had more tough upbringings. Do you think that you are driven, or do you think that you are dragged in terms of your career? Do you think that you're driven to succeed, or do you think that you're being dragged or running from something? That's a very interesting question, and I think it's a mixture of both. I think for for quite a long time I was dragged because I never had a plan, and then. At a later age, probably in my 50s, I mean, that sounds extraordinary, I was quite driven. Um, and I, I was driven by this purpose, which was about, you know, giving people the gift of communication. I mean, I had a, a creative agency and, you know, how you communicate your message it's so key to everything and you and so many people do it so badly so i found this gift that i could take really complex information and turn it into a very simple i always equate it with the there used to be a london underground map mm. before the london underground map and it was just a squiggle of spaghetti <laughs> black lines because it tried to follow the contours of the line now can you imagine and uh, it was totally incomprehensible and a graphic designer came along and he created this, the existing London Underground map. You know, simple, colour-coded, not using squiggly lines. And I say my brain probably looks like the original London Underground map, but its capacity mm. is to be able to produce the new London Underground map. So that was a skill I discovered later in life. It certainly wasn't there when I was younger. And so I then became a writer as well. Now, I was terrified of writing when I was younger because I'd been told, you know, you, you, you're not good at English, you're not good at this, you're not good at that. And I was frightened to put my writing in front of anyone. So then I discovered this gift for writing. So I did copywriting. This only started in my 50s and 60s. When you think, you know, that these things came along because I suddenly was driven by this purpose and it was to bring the, the gift of communication to all of my clients and also to young people. You know, I, I did quite a lot of, um, um, you know, work in the community, working with schools, schools that um, had poor results, you know, mm. they were generally sometimes described the daily record as the the worst school in Scotland, which is hardly helpful. But anyway, uh, I discovered just by changing the messaging of the school, they could involve parents, they could lift their children, they could make parents feel that they were important, they had a role, and that their children were were important. Because you, you, you take photographs of children doing things at school and send it to the parents, then suddenly the relationship between the parent and the school changes. Yeah. It's so simple. And actually, attendance at parents' evenings went up from something like 22% to over 60% in the space of a year. That's incredible. Simply by doing that. Simply by changing the, the, the tone and changing the language. Mm. How did you mention purpose there? And I think for I think it's a great point because I think throughout life there's so many people that will never find their purpose, and it's really sad. Um, you know, I've got friends that are working jobs that they don't like, yeah. and it's not going to change. And they live for the weekends now. 
when I reflect on what I've done so far, I'm so invested in video and photography, so passionate, and that is my purpose. So the weekends uh, aren't used for drinking for me, they're used for work, but I don't see it that way. How do you think that somebody could be helped along to find their purpose? Well, in a sense, it is getting to know the person and it's stripping away. I do actually do work. Um, I've spoken to young people and I've had a 15-year-old girl come, you know, pass a yellow sticky note to the front saying, that man's just changed my life because I've addressed the business of purpose and I've stripped it down because, you know, we are told, in a sense, what our purpose is about career. It's about passing exams. But they're not purposes. They're simply landmarks. And I tell the story about um, being in South Beirut the day after the bombing in 2006. And you're walking around this rubble. I mean, you've seen, you see it in television now, and, and, and it's, it's horrible. You're, you're just walking around this dust in the air. You see all the accoutrements of life, you know, cars flattened under great slabs of, of concrete. Um, you see all the accoutrements of life, you know, children's toys, bits of furniture, photographs. And there was this guy selling clothes on top of the rubble. And I said to the guy I was with, my God, that's entrepreneurial. He said, mm. that was his shop two days ago. Oh, my God. So I went, to, I went up to this guy. And he was actually selling. And I said, must be horrible to lose your shop. And he said, I'm not a shopkeeper. I give people style and confidence. Mm. Now, that to me was, uh, it was a huge d defining moment for me in terms of understanding what purpose is. Because most people would say, I run a shop. Yeah. So if you say you're a shopkeeper or I run a shop and the shop gets bombed, mm to rubble, then you've lost your business. I saw the same thing during COVID here, where, you know, some of the really, you know, highly regarded restaurants moved into delivering, you know, ice-packed yeah. meals for preparation. So they obviously thought, you know, we're not just a restaurant. Our purpose is to tantalise people's taste buds. So, you know, if that is your purpose, then the fact the restaurant can't open because of COVID is not, it's not a problem. It's just a, it's just a little stumble that you have to find a way around. Mm -hmm. But if your purpose is to run a restaurant and you can't open the restaurant, then you've lost your business. So purposes, I mean, you can actually talk to people about it. Because I can, I can, I can ask people, you know, what, 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 what they will do when they get a moment to themselves. And they'll say something like, um, I love, you know, dressing up. I love dressing up. And say, well, why do you love dressing up? Because I love, I love clothes. I love the feeling of clothes. So you're probably a clothes designer. Hmm. And they say, well, I've never thought, but yes. I, 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 so... People have got different drives and school tends to beat it out of you. That's that's exactly yep. the next question I was going to ask. Yep. Do you think that the schooling or perhaps education system in general is fatally flawed in which it, 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 mm -hmm. it designs a system which if you answer uh, a question outside of the box, it's automatically wrong? 
even if technically it's right, they're going to mark it wrong. Do you think the schooling or education system is kind of fundamentally flawed in that way? It is. And I'll I'll tell you what's missing. It is that, you know, the greatest gift that children have is their imagination. And you, you speak to small children, they... They go on these wild adventures of the mind. You could ask um, children to do, come up with ideas around anything, and they'll come up with hundreds of ideas. You ask, um, when they get into their s- secondary school, and you'll find there's a reluctance. They've almost, they're trying to think logically because they've been taught that, you know, you have to know things before you can express mm-hmm. something. So I said to my English teacher, he was asking, you know, come on, uh, just a random, we're just about to go on holiday, uh, favourite poets. And of course, you were meant to talk about the poets you'd been studying during the year, right? So people were saying Keats, uh, um, Robert Burns, uh, William Makepeace Thackeray, and I said Bob Dylan. And he said, "Ah, he's not a poet, He's, he's he's a... He's a song, he's a songster, you know, Mm. and he looked at me as if I was so stupid. And of course, a couple of years ago, Bob Dylan won the the Nobel Literary Prize, you know. So not being able to take that little lateral leap, see, Bob Dylan was a poet, you know, and so it is not allowing creativity to be at the foundation of everything in school, because if I... If I'm teaching history, listen, I was in the, I took my mother to Egypt. Uh, you know, she wanted to go to Egypt again before she died. So I took her over there and she was, you know, Alzheimer's was quite bad with her. And uh, suddenly she started speaking Arabic to people. She remembered her Arabic. Um, and we went on this uh, tour. There was nothing that she wouldn't do. Nothing. So I said, Mum, you know, this is a bit, it's a bit far. We have to get up at four in the morning. The temperature's going to be about, you know, 45 degrees. It'll be 50 by the time we come back. I'm coming. (laughs) But we had this um, amazing um, tour guide called Omar. And this guy, you know, all the women just loved him because he was so handsome. (laughs) But um, he, when we went into any situation, he would assign us characters. Right, he would assign us characters. You, 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 you know. I can't remember the names of the characters, but he involved us in a drama, um, and it was extraordinary how people got so engaged with that. It was so captivating, and you know, I just think that is how you communicate. You've got to think creatively, but we get creativity almost rubbed out of us, and I think that's a tragedy because. You know, learning is organic. It's something that, uh, the thing is, people learn themselves. You can't teach someone something. Because if they're not learning it, then you're effectively not teaching. Mm. There's a great Scottish expression saying, I've learnt him, right? Mm. Such bad English. But actually it's true. If you learn someone, then they, they've understood what you've said and you've you've captivated them, you've, you've, mm. you've embedded something. But the most important thing you've created a curiosity for them to go off and learn themselves. And now that we've got YouTube, you know, I, I, I did um, something with a class. I mean, I'm not a teacher. Oh, 
heaven forbid. But I, I did two days with uh, young people. And I said, tomorrow I'm going to be talking about um, Martin Luther King. That was it. And the next day when I said, has anyone heard of Martin Luther King? They'd all heard of him, hmm. right? Because he'd all gone and put his name in to Google. So that's the curiosity. And they were actually really interested. Hmm. They really loved this guy um, because of what he'd achieved and his whole personality. So yes, education is flawed. Um, and it's because the fact that we call it an education system in itself tells you everything. You know, education shouldn't be a system. It should be a, a process. It should excite people. And schools should be, you know, places where ideas are fermented. They should be an influence in the local community. And young people should be involved, you know, really quite early on in taking responsibility in the community and coming up for ideas within their community. I have, you know, asked young people to design the city they want to live in, right? And they don't hang about. They get straight down to it. And what they're designing is the city we should be living in now. The trouble is, they won't get into positions of power and authority for many years. So effectively, we're living in a city that's 20 years behind. I think the schooling system itself it's funny when you see the the rise of YouTube websites, social media. Yeah. Everything is changing so so fast, and the schooling system, to be honest, apart from the introduction of iPads, it's not really changed. No, it's not. And 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 you know, Blinkist, which is the most um, clever app of the lot. I mean, this is summarizing all the books, all the information, and yeah. everyone wants to work for Blinkist because it's such an extraordinary idea. Um, and that's where learning is going now. You know, bite-sized. Uh, you get the summary, then you explore. Like, when you see uh, the news coming on, they tell you what's going to be in the news. You, you get the headlines, right? And you say, oh, I must watch that. And then you look for the expansion of that story. And then you might look on YouTube to expand it even more. But... You have to, you know, capture people's imagination. If you don't do that, they're not learning. And, you know, you learn yourself. That's, that's the important thing. And I hated it. I hated the whole process. It didn't suit me. And I learned everything in all the wrong places. There's a quote, I think this kind of sums it up, but there's a quote that I absolutely love from Albert Einstein. And he says, everybody is a genius. But if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it's stupid. Absolutely. And I think it's so accurate. It's brilliant. It's yeah. so good. Because it, he did badly at school. Terribly. And yeah. when yeah. I look back at yeah. my career, but also my schooling, I, I kind of, uh, when I came out of school, I went to college, but I dropped out very, very quickly. So for anyone listening, college is the step below university. It's an extension of school. So for people that don't do well in school, then they can't get into university, go to college. But when I look back, I specifically remember teachers saying, you can't be a photographer, you can't be a videographer, you'll earn no money. Uh, and the only reason they're saying that is because they have a quota to fill of people that go into medicine or people that go into something prestigious, yeah. politics. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it's so, so wrong. Looking looking back at your... So you went through school, you then got expelled at 15, was it? Yes. 
So what happened? How did you get expelled? Well, no, I didn't do anything wrong. Well, I did. I, played, I was always <laughs> doing things wrong. You know, my hair was, was, was mm. growing. Um, I was a rock star. Yeah. You know, but, well, I wasn't really a rock star, but that's how I lived in my head. And I got a chance to perform on stage. But, um, no, I was just uh, called in the head teacher's office and he said, you know, you, haven't, you're just, you don't have a future at this school. And I thought, thank God. <laughs> no, and I, was, I couldn't feign disappointment. Yeah. So I kind of almost um, dramatically left his door wide open when you meant to shut it on the way out mm. and raced out of the school. And I felt this, you know, enormous relief. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, I was working in a, a tailor shop in Kirkcaldy High Street when they used to have shops. Mm. And, you know, that started my career, that just yeah. a career of working. And I've had so many jobs, I can't even begin to tell you. I had 29 jobs before I was 26. Jesus Christ. And uh, you're learning each one of them. Yeah. Life is so enriched by experience. I like learning as I'm doing things. So, you know, I did construction in London and I was able to um, completely transform this basement flat bought with my girlfriend in, in the late 70s. And I did all of the work apart from the plumbing and the, hmm. you know, some of the more embedded electricity. Um, so I'd learnt plastering, I'd learnt joinery, um, I'd learned so many things by working construction. So how valuable was that? If I'd wanted to go into property, which she did, um, you know, I could have been, we could have bought and sold, but I didn't want to spend my life. Um, I wanted to do more stuff around communication. So it was a lost opportunity, um, but it didn't interest me. I, when I was reading about you, I, I kind of heard that at one point in time you were homeless. Yeah. Um, what, what happened? So after school, you, yeah. you go straight into work. But what happened in the darker times? What happened in the times that? Well, I I went to London. I actually got a job, hmm. but I I got the sack because none of the customers could understand my Fife accent. <laughs> so, I mean, I felt really aggrieved by that because I. I'd worked in another shop before that, but everyone seemed to understand it. And they liked me. And, you know, I was a good seller because I joked with people. You know, it's just um, strange. Um, but I went back to my, my digs and, and I said, well, I've lost my job. Just said, well, if you lost your job, you've also lost your accommodation. You know, take your stuff and just leave. So mm. that was it. And once you're out in the streets, it's hard. It's hard to get back into um, into accommodation. And so I, I would define that period of about a year, sleeping on the streets, um, as incredibly challenging, but confidence building as well. Really? Because you have to, you have to survive. You have to navigate your way around. You have to be creative. You have to find ways to eat. You also have to become quite an influencer because you've got these people you share this experience and you've got I mean I was only 16 17 so uh, you find people that come in who are even younger 
Mm. So you become a kind of father figure to people that come in. And, and then you have to look after older people who are beginning to lose their grip. Mm. So, and then you have to negotiate. You know, people come and say, you can't sleep here. And, I mean, I wish I'd been around when Swilla Braverman was around. Because I would love a debate with her mm. about lifestyle choice, you know. Um, astonishing thing to say. Um, but it was really challenging because the cold, uh, the Met Police sometimes booted you in the ribs when you were asleep. I once got thrown down the stairs when I was asleep. So I woke up, you know, clattering down the stairs, ended up in the Charing Cross Hospital. Um, but on the plus side, it began to kind of morph from being a person who was asleep, a sleeper on the streets, to someone that was part of the hippie revolution in 1967. So then people started coming from the outside of the city. The girls would come in from places like Pinner and Middlesex and say, are you a hippie? And I would say, yes. And they'd say, oh, can I take your photograph? You know, and uh, so... I had this this two-sided experience. And then suddenly there was this kind of revolution of young people saying, stop the war in Vietnam. Um, we want our own press, you know. And we had all these papers, Black Dwarf and uh, International Times. I and, and the music was changing and the fashion was changing. So I was part of that, although I wasn't in the most privileged position at that time. Mm. Um, but you did. I used to go to Kensington Antiques Market, where, you know, it was it was an emporium of, you know, clothes and objects and everything smelled of patchouli oil, <laughs> and it was just wonderful. So I had this kind of twin existence. So during the day, you I went into Apple. I don't mean, mm. I mean the Beatles Apple office mm. in Savile Row and asked for a job when I was sleeping out, right? I didn't get it, but um, I, I was able to do that. And I was able to wander around, you know, Kensington Antique Market and, and speak to all these people um, and just live this kind of slightly gilded life as a, as a slightly, um, you know, rebellious teenager, someone that was part of this revolution. But in fact, I was just someone that was sleeping out and trying to make my way and trying to understand who I was. How do you think people can build their confidence in terms of speaking to others? I know that you were just talking about how you went and asked for a job. And even when you were sleeping on the, the streets, you had the confidence to talk to people. I think with the rise of social media nowadays, yeah, yeah. people struggle with that. So how? what are your tips to help people build their confidence? Well, I, I, during the summer, I'm not going to say every day, I go out and speak to five strangers a day. Could be in the bus, could be in the tram, because I live in Edinburgh. Um, it could be in a shop, but I do that. So is that a quota in your head that you need to fill yes, each day? Yes, it's, it's a quota. So it is like, um, you know when you sit next to someone on a bus? Don't put your earphones on. Talk to someone. People all want to engage. Um, and 
it's the best practice. So if you go into a shop, don't just point at something, you know, say um, something like, oh, that's a nice smile to be greeted with. And the person behind the counter thinks, wow, that's lifted me. You know what I mean? Um, and just get to know people in normal daily circumstances. Smile at people when you're walking along the street and they will smile back. And it is this just be engaged with things around you. And that's where the practice comes from. And it really, I mean, I remember when I was, it took me until my 40s to feel confident about going into a bank because this kind of austere um, face of the banking industry I found very intimidating. So it took me a long time to get the confidence to do that. But I learnt to engage with people. Mm. So the confidence grew from that because you had to engage with people. You had to. So, so do you think sleeping in the streets in essence was a blessing and a curse because you learnt yeah. so many imperative skills yeah. that you'd then use in later life? Yes. I wouldn't recommend it as a, <laughs> as a, as a course. Mm. But certainly... Well, you look at reality TV shows. What are they all about? I mean, I hate them. Hmm. I hate them because they're so confected. But this idea of putting people under hardship, you know, seeing how they survive. Um, I, I think that life is a struggle and, and, and young people need to start talking at school because this kind of shush, don't talk in the corridor. I don't know what it's like now. Don't run in the corridors. You know, shush. I haven't asked you anything yet. You know, and it is there. I would love to introduce this in the Scottish curriculum. I would love, no one's ever asked me, um, but I would love to work on young people's confidence, their ability to express themselves, their ability to listen and pick up on signals, their ability to just speak emotionally. Because we're all taught to speak um, from a different part of our head. No, well, from a different part of our body. As a speaker, I speak from the heart. And I speak to the heart. Because if you're speaking to the head, people go, hmm, I must think about that. If you speak to the heart, it goes straight to the head. You know what I mean? And uh, children are not taught they do it in primary school. I think what they're doing in primary school is fantastic. As soon as you get to secondary school, all that seems to disappear. And a lot of damage is done. Yeah. It's interesting what you were saying about speaking to five strangers a day because I believe in business or in life, consistency is the key to success. If you're consistent in business or whatever passion you have, you might succeed. If you're not consistent and you quit, yeah. you're definitely not going to. So I think that's such a good lesson for people to learn is just yeah. be consistent, whether it's communication or elsewhere, have a quota each day and try and fill it. Yeah. I think that would be... I think it's, it, it is. It's about uh, practicing something that's really important. Mm -hmm. And by the way, in the last you know six months, I've become a bit more isolated, you know, um, out of a relationship I've been in for quite a long time. So suddenly you find your, your life is just turned upside down a wee bit um, and then you have to go back to the kind of raw instincts that you've got to get out there and, and but you know people are more isolated um, 
we don't bring people together enough now mm. and that the, the absolute essential for people at all ages is to be together and not just together with your demographic you know i don't want to spend you know all my days with people of my age i want to spend them with people from all walks of life and of all ages you know, we've become very demographically conservative you know where you know you go to a pub and you think hmm oh i stick out a bit here. <laughs> i'm about you know 52 years older than the, the nearest person and people are going to look at you but, but i do brazen out mm. i do brazen out and um because you have to you cannot afford to fall into this you know this categorization that we we apply old guy old woman you know um it's just it's horrible and we've got to break down all those barriers and we put them up ourselves and what happened when you so you you have this spell of homelessness how did you overcome that well i got in with some irish people <laughs> and uh, the the and it was a lebanese guy as well and we decided and we got a bit of help with this but we decided to go to dublin and uh, so went to dublin i loved dublin it felt you know it was a celtic city so i felt you know quite at home uh, quite early on and the, the lebanese guy nicky um, he said we need to pause this podcast really quickly to bring to you a quick word from our sponsors Chisholm Hunter are the sponsors of the Into the Mind podcast and without them we would not be sitting here today they are family run jitters with over 165 years of experience and they sell luxury watches and luxury jewellery all my jewellery and my watches are from Chisholm Hunter I wouldn't sit here and advertise someone that I don't genuinely use myself genuinely I'm going to say that again. Everything that I get is from Chisholm Hunter. So if you're looking for something special for yourself or a loved one, head to chismhunter.co.uk. That's chismhunter.co.uk. But that's not that interesting. Let's get back to what Mike was saying. Why don't you get a guitar and busk? And I said, all right. So I um, managed to get a guitar off Subban and then he said, I can play the bongos. <laughs> Could bust together. But we, we didn't look like buskers, right? So he had this very flash outfit that would wear, that he would wear, and we were performing at the top of Grafton Street. I was the first guitarist to busk in Dublin. And now you can't walk, you know, eight feet without the next busker. Hmm. So we put on this performance and, you know, I didn't just stand there, I was, you know, rocking it. and. <laughs> very very strange but used to get big crowns and and make good money it was mm. just amazing actually the irish times sent a photographer out to take a photograph of us and you know one day i'm standing there rocking it and this guy came up and he said uh, that's really cool man you know um and he said you fancy coming to the bailey tonight for a drink and it was um brian downey from Thin Lizzy, and of course he was with Phil Linett, who I didn't know at the time. So made friends with them. Um, they were just forming. And, you know, it was a great time. And it was the idea of using busking to perform rather than just play the music. And of course, there was no 
amplification available then. So you really had to rock it, you had to shout. And my voice was growing in strength every day. You know, I was, it was just amazing. So again, another huge part of my confidence build. Mm. Um, so that's how I got over and I came back to Edinburgh, did a couple of jobs and then went down to London again. And, and I had, you know, as, as someone that had accommodation, I was staying in a hostel, civil service hostel that I sneaked into um, and did various jobs. Um, uh, so I, I wanted to, you know, conquer London. I wanted yeah. <clears throat> not to be a failure. Um, so <clears throat> when I got involved in this construction industry, you know, suddenly I felt, hmm, here I am contributing, you know, um, a glistening, you know, new building that will stand in the, on the London landscape, on the skyline. I've been part of that. Of course, you work with all these Irish guys and Jamaican guys <clears throat> who were effectively building London. Mm. You know, uh, that was true. You know, where would London have been without the Irish, you know, doing the underground work? You know? um, and the building that was um, proliferating in the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s, you know? So I, it was a, a slow um, grind going from job to job, learning, getting a bit more confidence, but the performance thing was just there. And so you worked these kind of jobs and then you began to manoeuvre yourself into, into business? No. Quite. I did some uh, community work, actually, mm. um, when I learned so much. Because, I, I mean, I wanted to give something back. And I remember going for the interview because it was a new project that was setting up in Leith in Edinburgh. And I sent my my CV in. And it was a it was a full scat piece of paper. It was all written because I didn't have access to a typewriter. And uh, wait, so you you wrote out your full CV? We had to. I mean, where would I have got it done? Wow. You know? um, so I sent it in. I thought nothing's going to happen. And I got invited for an interview, and I was astonished. This is quite a a good position. It was a community development position in Leith. And uh, so I went to this interview and. The, they were like, oh, smiling at my CV and said, there isn't very much in your CV that tells us that you would be capable of a job of this responsibility. And I said, well, I've entertained, you know, Saturday night pedestrian audiences in Dublin. I have learned to plaster, to brick build brick walls. Um, I've learned how to distinguish a, a good French wine from a bad French wine. I've survived on the streets and I know how to communicate. And I've brought people back from the brink of suicide. So, you know, that's what I've learned. And mm. I think that's taught me a lot that would be of use in this job. So I got the job. You said something quite interesting there. You said that I, I've being able to talk people from the brink of suicide. Is that with the, sort of obviously with the communication aspect? What, what was the story there? Well, there was... If you're, oh, if you're, comfortable, hmm? if you're comfortable sharing it. No, I, I mean, I've also been in that position myself. Hmm. Right? 
um, before I got to the stage of helping someone. But I did, so I know, I know that there's life after. If you fail or, you know, someone manages to pull you back from the brink. But there was a, a girl who had, this is an astonishing story. She, she came from a, a wealthy environment and she was only 15, right? And she had failed some of her exams. And her parents had said to her, we will not feed you until you apologise to every single member of the family for bringing the family name down. That's for not passing her exams. Pretty rough. Extraordinary. Mm. So she ran away. So I, I, I became a bit of a protector because she was very young, 15. And of course she had none of the tools to survive mm. in the street. She brought up in a fairly gilded you know, environment. And anyway, um, the thing that was incredible about her was she would sit at night and she would start singing. She had a beautiful singing voice. And I says, where, where, what do your parents think about your singing? Because you're brilliant. She says, they don't know. So she'd done her singing in private. Can you imagine that? Mm. But one night uh, she, she wandered off um, and she was crying and I followed her and she was going to jump off a ledge. She climbed up this you know, open stair and she was going to jump off so I, I talked her down and the, the, the sad thing is I don't know what happened to her afterwards because you know, people suddenly fragment um, but you, you know, big cars with smoked windows would draw up, and I, I you know, um, would you like, you know, someone to take you for a meal tonight? You look as if you could do with something to eat. And they would drive off, and sometimes these youngsters would never come back again. You didn't know what happened to them. I think there were about three and a half thousand missing in London. Still never found. Mostly women. No, boys. Mostly boys, but but girls as well, yeah. So you never know what happens because we we live in a very predatory world. And of course, people sleeping out um, are, oh, they're prey to offers. You know, I can put you up, I can give you, you know, new clothes, I can give you money. And I've had these offers and I've discovered to my... Um, I've discovered myself that there's attached to something far more dangerous. So um, I don't know what happened to her, but she could have survived. She could have gone back home. You just don't know. Um, but we don't think about that. You know, the number of young people that die on the streets. I think in Glasgow last year, there was something like 85 died on the streets, alone in Glasgow. So this is a real issue. And the the, the thing that you probably don't understand is that the number one priority is not accommodation. I got taken by this charity one night and it was December and I was taken to this hostel and uh, I was shown into this tiled room so the first thing that was said to me was uh, take your clothes off. 
And uh, which I did, and then there was a hose pointed at me. So that that was me being processed. So what did I do? I escaped back into the streets because at least I had some dignity there. And I knew people. I had a reputation. People liked me out in the streets because I used to hang around Piccadilly Circus. I was a bit of a, a kind of star within this this small world. Um, so I, I, I've realised then that, you know, it is not... People want more than anything else to feel valued, to feel significant, to have a name, to have a background, even to have dreams. And none of those things were forthcoming. So you end up going back to the streets and you think, oh, thank God I'm back here again. Um, because they, we don't understand that if you strip away people's dignity, you have done something of immense damage. Teachers do it at school. Parents do it to their kids. Um, employers do it to their employees. I've heard some terrible things like, you know, you're not paid to think. I mean, who's not paid to think? Hmm. You know? So we've got all these things that... Um, and you see it now where you've got a whole population of people being called human animals, right? If you take away people's dignity, then... The, you're stripping away something huge. So, accommodation, that would be nice. First and foremost, I want to feel, you know, safe. I want to feel recognised. I want to feel valued. Without that, accommodation doesn't matter very much. If you said, you know, I'll give you a shop doorway and no one will disturb you, that would do. So, people given accommodation, maybe sometimes far away from where they're sleeping out. They've got no recognition of the neighbourhood. They've got no friends. Um, and they're having to manage this, you know, learning to cook, learning to... And, and then they might escape back into the streets. And that's why it's a process that sometimes requires a bit more effort. Mm. And eh, if only I could, you know, change so many of these service interventions because sometimes they do more damage than they do good mm. and then they'll say you know, put people in accommodation and they go back to living in the streets why is that because you've taken them out of something that they feel you know fairly protected in and put them somewhere where they're they're like an alien and they, they they've got no one to talk to they've just you know it's like taking an orchid out of uh, thailand and you know sticking it to grow in, you know, Dundee. Why did I use Dundee? I don't know. I love Dundee. Yeah. But it's, you can't, you, you just can't, you know, um, you can't introduce people to a process which diminishes them and, and, and you know, takes them down and makes them feel devalued. Yeah. And it's the same in work. I've had terrible things said to me um, when I've been in jobs. I need to pause this podcast really quick for the last time. I, I promise you this is the, the last time. I really need to ask you a favor. If you could hit that like button, subscribe button, five-star button, whatever it is, wherever you are, I'd really appreciate it. And what I'm going to do for you in return is make this podcast the best production that I possibly can. Thank you.
disruptor that's something that i've heard you saying quite frequently in yeah. business do yeah. you think that adhd has helped you become a disruptor oh absolutely it's my number one skill mm. my number one skill um even i'm sitting in a meeting you know and people are going around you know talking and it's all very formal i'm the guy that will break that mm. i'll be the icebreaker I'll say something ridiculous. I'll just, I'll provide a distraction. Because, you know, it is really important to say, this is how we do things and not to interrupt that process. So, you know, people start in jobs and they're told, hmm, this is how we do things here. And you say, well, I've got an idea how we could probably, you know, make it easier, make it cheaper. Hmm. Ooh, that's not the way we do things, you know. And I mean, that's part of our education system, I think. It, I the idea that people come out of school and, you know, settle into this kind of, this is the status quo. I mean, everyone coming out of school should be a disruptor. Yeah, yeah. You know, we need disruptors. We need leaders who are disruptors. Because, uh, you know, you see adverts for leaders and it usually says must have led in a similar environment for so many years. And you think, if they've worked in a similar environment, it's probably a competitor. Yeah. And you're bringing them in here, here to, to do exactly what they've done there and bring it to your organisation, rather than, you know, your purpose is to lead people to achieve this incredible vision or to set a vision. But you know, hiring leaders who've done exactly the same job somewhere else. And this is what we do. So we very rarely change the structure. We don't do enough disruption. And right now, we need it. You know, a lot of the ideas that are still dominant in the world are profoundly wrong. Mm. Do you not agree? I, I would totally agree. I think I mean, that... It's, it's absurd. Yeah. It, it's wild. But I, I, after, I've been very lucky that I've managed to work with some a lot of CEOs or uh, yeah. CFOs or, or high up company representatives, most of the time they are what you're talking about, they're disruptors, yeah. but they fall into the same pitfall of we're hiring for a senior manager, they need experience at the same or a similar company yeah. uh, and they normally pick competitors. People are so adverse to change and they're so, yeah. they, they worry about it a lot. Yeah. And if you, disrupt their structure of their day they get really upset yeah. and that's something that i've learned through business is that even with this podcast or with the the youtube channel that we set up or uh, doing things a little bit differently it made genuine waves in the industry and people didn't like you yeah, they, they didn't yeah, like yeah. you at all and i think yeah. that you need to be okay with not being liked and i think that's something that people yeah. really struggle with because they want to be like they don't have the confidence to not be liked or they want to be respected. Yeah. I mean, th th that's the thing. You have to win respect, but you don't have to win affection. But with respect comes an affection. You know what I mean? It might not be a, a cuddly affection. You think, well, you know, I, I admire him. I admire her. You know, at least they're getting things done. They're moving things on. And I may not be the beneficiary all the time, but I trust them. 
How would you think that people could gain others' respect in business? Um, well, I think, I mean, I have been, you know, I've had creative agency that did really well until the banking crisis that it began to lose momentum and I had to give it up eventually. But um, I think you have to be passionate about why everyone's there. You have to love people. You have to love people. You have to trust them. If you start from the position that, you know, mm, if I'm out of the office, what are people doing? That's a bad. You know, mm -hmm. you have to trust people. And you have to make them know that you trust them. And, you know, I remember people saying to me, my, my employees saying, why don't you go on a holiday? And, you know, go on holiday, you need a holiday. And I'm saying this to a friend who's got another company and he said, danger signs that. I said, why? He said, they want you out of the way so they can, you know, muck about for a couple of weeks. Mm. I said, no, they don't. They won't be out of the way so that they can prove that without me, they can make things happen. And that was exactly right. So I said, yeah, I'm going. Um, and you could see them get more excited before I went because they were going to suddenly take responsibility. And people want to step into your shoes. And that's great. And you've got to trust people. Because if your default position is, you know, have you clocked in this morning? I, I mean, my first, you know, a number of jobs. I worked in the steelworks. It was all clock in. I worked in a biscuit factory, clock in. You know, it's just, um, it was constantly being watched because the assumption is that you're there to avoid, you know, you take any chance to avoid work. Mm. You take any chance to nip off to the toilet for a fag or you take any chance to slow down. And it's not true. You know, it's not true. If you feel, you know, aligned with what the company's doing, um, and you, you treated well, your productivity goes up. Mm -hmm. So I do motivational speaking. I mean, I do stuff in leadership. I do motivational speaking. And it's not difficult to, to get inside people's heads and say, you know, I know what it feels like. And you see people nodding. Um, and you, you just start changing the script. You start painting a different scenario. And it's extraordinary how just by the use of language and the use of eye contact um, and the use of tone, you know, you can make people feel that you understand them, that you, you're on their side. Never this kind of, you know, don't do anything until you've passed it by me. So you get people saying, you know, you, you phone up and say... If someone says to me, uh, I'll have to ask my manager, I think, I don't like this organisation. Yeah. Because it means they've got responsibility, but they don't have authority. What's the point of giving someone responsibility without authority? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you, you, you've got responsible for that. But if someone comes up with a question, you have to come through here. We've got organisations that take weeks to make a decision because it has to go through loops. Yeah. You know, we don't have weeks to make decisions. 
do, do you think in business the the structure of having kind of a f having a flatter structure is more beneficial of, than having a pyramid oh absolutely yeah yeah because there's less people course, to go through yeah 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 and you know people want to do well at work they want a bit of status mm. and the status is not the job title right because uh you know you see you know things assistant deputy liaison officer you think oh my god imagine carrying that as a job description. So I I hate job descriptions. I think they're 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 old fashioned, they tie people in. They allow people to say, it's not in my job description. Mm. You know? How absurd. So if you've got a, a, you know an organization and you all know where you're going and you're all bought into that, you know, great companies liberate people to bring their personality to the workplace, not to become some kind of autominant, you know, um, you know, walking around with a kind of glazed look, you know, I'm a company person. It's about liberating people. It's about creating a, an excitement around why they're there and what they can achieve. And mm. it's so different. And the other thing, of course, is that, you know, if someone does well at the job, think, well, let's promote them. Let's make them a manager. And you think, why? Because they're good at their job. Just give them more money. Mm, I, I've seen that. Some, yeah, yeah. I, I've seen. I've seen that a hundred percent. I've seen so many times where somebody does not want to be in a more senior position. They're yeah. great at their job, and the company promote them anyway, and then they crumble. Yes, because it's the only way they could get an upgrade. It's oh, you've been here for yeah. ten years. About time we gave you promotion. But you're brilliant at what you do, and you inspire all the people around you. So in effect, you are a leader. But you don't have a leader's job description. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, great companies do. I mean, Google are totally different from, say, British Airways. You know, um, Google, um, they say, we don't have a research and development department. All our people are in research and development. <laughs> you know, they get 20% of the working week away from their desk to think, come up with ideas. The driverless car came from Google from an employee of Google, right? So there's nothing about uh, Google that fits into these old style, and it's a much flatter structure. And it's all about, you know, uh, having a kind of living organism that's flowing with ideas and constantly evolving. And Google just keep going and stretching and stretching. People might hate them, but they are a company that is all about their people. Hmm. I think one of the most important things, and this is something that I implemented myself, is everybody wants to be heard and everybody wants to be seen. And there's this very old style, come into the boardroom, be quiet, present your ideas, uh, yeah. maybe get them signed off. But what I've implemented is every single meeting that, that uh, anybody is in, they need to bring an idea to further the company. And then they need to, if we want to go ahead with it, then it's their idea, they'll further company, and the benefits of that idea will be, uh, you know, absolutely reciprocated to them. Um, and I think that's such a brilliant way of having people be seen and be heard, because a lot of the time, the brilliant ideas in a company, they don't come from the leaders. They come from the people that are actually working the shelves or, you know, can think of strategies and things. That is the, the, the first thing you learn about the workplace. I mean, I remember working with uh, steel steelworks, right? And people who worked in, in, in steel industry knew 
that their equipment was out of date. Hmm. You know, we didn't wear protective masks because that would have slowed production down. We knew when we got into bonus territory, but if you want to ask, if you want to find out how to how to make things better, talk to the people on the front line. Yeah. They're the ones that know. So um, this is what you're talking about. I say, you know, if you've got um, regular meetings, start with any other business. Yeah. Don't leave that at the end because you know what happens. Any other businesses, when all the discussions are of any interest, happen. People say, I've, I've, I've just got, well, we don't have time now, but uh, perhaps, or people are, the, you can hear the chairs scraping and people's eyes going to their mobile phone, mm. to their watch. Do people wear watches still? I've got a watch on. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, sometimes I feel so out of date. <laughs> but uh, yes, and that's the disruption thing. You know? Yeah. It is <clears throat> astonishing how how so many practices that have been around for so long are still there. Yeah. So the, the tools might change. You know, we've got more advanced computing systems, but and what we've tried to do is to digitalize those old systems rather than saying, What you know, let's look at this in a totally different way. Let's bring school children in to help us because they will see something immediately because we've got so used to it we're so uh, accomplished at the status quo that we don't even see you know, the ability to look around this from a different angle i've got so many examples i mean you you know, honestly um so many examples where you know i've had um you know I brought school children school children in and they come up with a totally different angle um, and they bring something left to field mm. so asked in West Lothian primary age children so this is what happens right you go to a primary school and these are children 9, 10 and you say right when you see an adult drinking too much what does it mean to you? Can you draw up a poster? You know, just, and they get straight down to it. Beautifully coloured posters. And this one, the first one that came forward, it means broken promises. Right? So, so what do you mean by that? Well, you know, they, my mum and dad say, uh, you know, we go to the zoo on Saturday morning. And then they wake up, I get up really excited on a Saturday morning, I go, and, uh, and they say, look, hangover, can we not do it another time? So a child, that's a huge thing. Another, another little girl said it means um, trying to kill yourself. Hmm. And I said, oh, that's... But apparently this girl had found her mother hanging and had managed to release her mother. And when the mother came round, you know, days in hospital she says I'm sorry darling I just it was just the alcohol so you 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 hear that from primary age children mm. you know it means broken promises you never think of that so when we fed this back to parents they were going yeah you know uh, and so we did this campaign in West Lothian 
and it was totally different from anything that had been done before. And do you know something? Um, parents were much more struck by some of these messages than they had been with anything else, because usually drink is bad for you. Yeah. Don't drink. Um, you know, alcohol, um, alcoholism, any departments, they know all that. You don't actually have to tell anyone that drinking is bad for them hmm. or over drinking is bad for them. You just have to remind them of some of the impacts of the drinking on themselves and other people. Hmm. And the more left fuels you can come, the better. Yeah. I, you know? Yeah. And that's where dis disruptors fit in. I feel that children or young people, and I, I was really bad for this when I was young, yeah. you'd call a spade a spade and it would really upset people. Yeah. Uh, and, and I actually got into quite quite a bit of bother when I first joined, uh, got into business because I was quite disruptive in the sense that I would point out the obvious that people weren't looking at. And I'd say, well, do you think this is good? Because I think it's shit. And they'd say, you can't say that. I'd say, well, why not? It's a broken system. Why are you working with it? And I think that's where disruptors really thrive is just pointing out the obvious. Yeah. The, 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 the... Well, it's, it is. Mm. It, it is. I, I remember being in South Easter House and uh, a room for about 250 people and asked the question, could Ellen see what's, what life was like in this estate? Mm. <clears throat> Silence. And this older woman, she put her hand up and says, well, son, see if you're at a, a suntan or a criminal lawyer. Fucking brilliant place to live. See if you want to buy a banana. Hmm. You've got a bus and go a mile down the road. So we use the banana in this campaign. Yeah. Right? Because your banana downturned, it's not smiling. This was quite revolutionary at the time. It was, a, it was about the, the, the transfer of housing from the council to, to local associations where they wanted local people managing it. And they just tell the obvious. But I mean, hmm. what a brilliant way to summarise what life is like in the estate. And actually, they were right. You know, a glistening suntan parlour. Hmm. And, uh, you know, criminal lawyer, of course. And, uh, you know, the population going around with, uh, <clears throat> you know, Trinidadian suntans, hmm. you know, because that was what was on offer, because that's what the market decides. Uh, so you get brilliant descriptions from people. Is brilliant. That, is that where you get your ideas when you do marketing? Oh, yeah. So you, you so often, yeah. That's interesting. So you'll introduce people that have got no biases because perhaps they're quite young and they come from such a left field angle that you think, yeah. that's weirdly genius. Yeah. That's that's interesting. And that's a genius. You know, you think of, uh, you know, Murray Walker, the racing commentator. Uh -huh. You know, he came up with go to work on an egg and drink a pint of milk a day. Really? Because he was an advertising copywriter. <laughs> right? Drink a pint of milk a day. It's not English, right? <laughs> Brilliant. Go to work on an egg, a really successful campaign because, um, you know, it was encouraging people to drink, to, mm. sorry, to have an egg before they go to work in the morning. Brilliant campaigns. But it took a disruptive, you know, somebody, this isn't English. Drink a pint of milk a day, beans means Heinz, mm. you know? Um, so it is disruptive. And it is, uh, how do you, you know, 
I'm not going to go back to old campaigns because I'm just, you know, mm. how old is this audience? You know, 78. <laughs> uh, but, you know, every kind of real development has come from disruption. You think about um, leaders like JFK. You know, we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of this decade and bring him back safely to Earth. They didn't have the technology. They had none of the, the, the stuff to do that. So he changed the, this Cold War tension mm. between America and Russia. He changed it into a space race. Mm. Much better. Um, and I remember being on a bus when someone jumped out in front of the bus. It was at night and he stopped the bus driver and he says, the Russians have put a man into space. That was Yuri Gagarin. Mm. I remember that and the excitement. Um, but that is what I mean. Mm. You know, someone that says, we're going to put a man on the moon. And we're sorry, a man it was, yeah, but I'm uh, uh, bringing back safety before the end of this decade. Of course, Kennedy died, but they did actually achieve it. Yeah. Right? If you don't set this kind of ambition, if you don't speak out of turn, if you don't say the, the things that people don't expect you to say, then nothing will change. And also no one will listen because they're so used to hearing it. I think that's where the, the, the marketing side of thing really comes in. If you disrupt people in their day-to-day -day lives, they'll look and they'll listen. And I think Brewdog was a great example of that. Some of their marketing yeah, yeah, campaigns, yeah, yes, absolutely. outrageously, yeah. some of them were outrageous, but yeah. goddamn people listened. Yes. I mean, they tried to sue Brewdog for introducing Elvis Juice. I know. So, I know. Yeah, so he yeah, then changed yeah. his name to Elvis yeah, just to yeah. prove a point. Yeah. Genius. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And yeah. it was disruptive as well. What, yeah. what do you think are the three main lessons that you've learned in marketing? Well, the, 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 the disruptive thing mm. is, is, is the first. But also being bold. I mean, I, I ran a campaign for um, foster care recruitment in, in Edinburgh, right? So um, all the foster care campaigns are about children looking miserable, mm. right? You know, find a home, find a home. Uh, and I thought, it's, it's rubbish. You don't need to be reminded about the misery of children. Um, so we designed a, a campaign and it was in, in kind of illustrative style and it was all about the fun that foster carers get out of being foster carers. In other words, this is what the foster carers get. We know what the children get. You know, so it was like, I get to go to gigs. Um, I get to play on a games console. I get to take someone to the football on a Saturday. So it was all about the joy of the foster carers rather than the children. And of course, if you're trying to sell the notion of fostering to people you want to become foster carers, focus on them. Then we asked, you know, what kind of voice do you want to hear when you phone up the foster care line? Because most people will phone out of hours. Say, hello, this is the foster care line. Uh, please leave your name, message number. We'll get back to you. They wanted to hear Lorraine Kelly's voice. <laughs> so she did it for us. No, no, didn't charge, just put a wee bit of money towards a charity. And their recruitment went up quite dramatically mm. within months. That's interesting. Right? Uh, 
what, so simple. And what, what do you think? So, you, so your kind of ethos is to always come left field with marketing. Whatever you do, if you if you follow the, the norms, there's going to be no results. Yeah, I mean, look look at Southwest Airlines in America, hmm. right? What is their um, point of difference? Um, you know, our staff are fun-loving. Was it? No. Was it, our people have a warrior spirit and a fun-loving attitude. Hmm. So that's what they do. So you get these outrageous uh, safety messages. You know, hmm. some of them get into YouTube and you get invited to say, Ellen DeGeneres program. Well, one of the arrows is dead when Ellen DeGeneres is still on the biggest thing on TV. It's about making it disruptive. It's about, hmm. you know, the idea that a flight can be made more fun rather than made uh, more safe because people will assume that if they're getting in an aircraft, it's going to be safe. So if you keep saying, you know, our safety is 100% better than anyone else, you think, why? Why? You know, so it's like, mm. um, you know, when you're going down these steps, do not trip. People will more likely trip mm. if they see that sign. So Southwest Airlines said, let's make it fun. Let's make flying fun. What happens when flying is fun is people relax much more quickly. And, you know, people who've got fear of flying, they suddenly find themselves, because they're laughing. Yeah, yeah. Virgin Airlines did that. They were the, they were the they, first absolutely. to introduce the TV yeah, yeah. Uh, to the back, of, uh, the back yeah. of the seats. And Richard Branson said that he was the first to introduce this. And within a year, every other every, airline had copied yeah. him. But he was first. And also he wants to be air flying more fun. Yeah. So Southwest Airlines and they say, how can we make this from every step? You know, so our staff are part of a, a show. It's almost mm -hmm. like a performance. So you get people who are, you know, wanting to be actors and actresses. Like, what kind of job? Well, get on Southwest Airlines. Yeah. Perfect job. Because it's a performance. Mm -hmm. You're there to make people feel, and it's the same with Virgin. People want to work with Virgin because they're a great company to work for. In terms of productivity, you strike me as a very energetic man. And I'm wondering how you keep, because you're so busy, you've got business, you've got motivational speaking, you've got tons of different stuff. How do you keep your productivity level high? Well, I need to, I need to be wanted, right? Uh, marketing yourself is, is just tough. Mm. Um, and so I keep putting out bits of inspiration. I do a few bits to camera just on my, my computer. Um, and I try and keep stirring the pot, being a bit disruptive in the posting. But you can't force people to employ you. So you have to be out there all the time. If anyone talks to me about anything in the world, I am energetic. Mm. I'm enthusiastic. And I think it's because I want to leave the world a better place than the one I came into. And right now, it's not looking good. So my energy mm. comes from, you know, wanting to um, do things, make things happen. And I can't sit back and watch, you know, the world falling apart. I can't sit back and watch that. Um, I, I think our politicians need to be challenged. But... I would love to train our politicians in how to present. Mm. 
Mm. I would love to do that. Change the language because it's doing nothing. Because as soon as a politician opens their mouth, people go, oh, here we go again. Yeah, same Am I thing. right? Yeah. We've spent one, another 1. 1.5 billion this year. That doesn't mean anything to people. You know, who knows what 1.5 billion pounds looks like? Mm. No one. Elon Musk. I, exactly, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, 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 uh, what does that mean? What, what's the impact of that? You don't see how much money you've spent. You've said, this is what we're investing in. This is what we want to see. This is what we expect to see. You said something quite interesting there. You said uh, you'd like to teach them how to present. How can someone present themselves to other people better? Well, by, first of all, being yourself. I mean, the, mo the number one thing is authenticity. Number one thing. If you're authentic, it's, that's quite magnetic. You know, if you're being yourself, you know, you get people to come in and say, hello, I, you know, and you think, well, wait a minute. Yeah. You know, I, I feel a bit iffy about this because you're putting on an act. Mm. Um, so just being authentic and speaking with the accent that you've grown up with, that's another thing. But it's about being passionate. It's about, um, you know, speaking, you know, how you feel. So if I say, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, poverty is a problem. Of course, we're, we're trying to address that in the way we, um, you know, determine economic policy. People are going to go, you don't feel any of that. Mm. You don't understand. If someone says, look, I know what it's like to go hungry. I know what it's like. Um, as a child, you know, to turn up to school without a raincoat on um, and it's pouring with rain. I know what it's like. I don't want any family, any child to suffer the way that I did as a child. That's the person you're going to believe. 100%. You're, all, you're also going to like them. You mm -hmm. think, oh my goodness. They're not afraid to say what it means to them. Mm. You know? And it's this fear of... Uh, saying anything that might be... Think about uh, Martin Luther King. You know, I often say on stage, you know, imagine if he said, I have a strategic plan. <laughs> yeah. How different the course of history might be. I have a dream. And captivating. Mm. And a politician saying, I have a dream. Wow. You know, that's... that's um, or they might say, you know... In my imagination, this is what I have created. And that's where I want us to be in five years' time, for example. The debate on television is awful. I mean, it, it really is. You know, you get these political programmes and then someone comes on who's a bit disruptive and it's such a breath of fresh air, isn't yeah. it? And they have to, you know, they're, they're speaking a party line. Okay, but even within a party line, you can bring your personality. You know, why are you in the party? Uh, is it because you've got exactly the same beliefs as everyone else? No, your experience has driven you to those beliefs. Hmm. Talk about your experience. Don't talk about, 
I spoke to a consistent uh, constituent yesterday, and uh, as if that constituent represents the whole of society, you you can't do that. Listen, I would love to to make Scotland a a kind of leader in human communication. Mm -hmm. From spending an hour with me or an hour and a half, what could I get better at in terms of communication? Oh no, I think you're really good. I think you've got empathy. I think you've got insight. Um, no, I think maybe, no, I can't, I really can't think of anything. I think you're really good. I think you're very accomplished. Um, I suppose the only thing is maybe to, to, because I haven't heard you s speaking. You're asking me questions, right? Mm. Great interview. I mean, I can say this. Best interview I've had. I appreciate that. Thank no, you. Really? And that, that, that means that you're picking up on what I'm saying. So you don't have a set of questions. Hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and it's just such a rarity now. And, and you, I'll tell you another thing you've done. You've given me centre stage. Do you know what I mean? I don't feel that uh, this is about you, the interviewer. I feel it's about me, the interviewee. Michael Parkinson used to do that. Um, and it's a real, it's a skill to be able to pick up on something that someone said and take them on a different journey, you know, pick up on something. No, I think you're really good. I appreciate that. I was, I was going to ask you as well. I, so I, I've always struggled with uh, public speaking, always had a great, great kind of anxieties about it. What would be your tips for getting better at public speaking? Because you yourself, I've, I've heard you, you're brilliant. Um, how do you think? Um, well, I think that the mistake people make when they teach public speaking is it's they talk about the voice and the and the projection, hmm. you know, and you know the breathing. Well, the first thing to start with is uh, what do you talk about? I want to you talking about something that you you feel you feel. Yeah. So uh, you don't even have to have a lot of words. Bear, bear with me. In Edinburgh in the mid-70s, there was a huge issue with uh, dampness mm -hmm. in homes. So there was a delegation of tenants led by this formidable woman who came up to the council to talk to officials and, uh, and councillors. They were terrified. That, but um, she didn't come in and rant. She came in and she had a, a box of Scots porridge oats. And it was the end of this walnut table, yeah? She just tipped it over and a lump fell out onto the table, a green mould. Mm. And she said, that's what my children woke up to this morning. And that was it, right? Oh, boy. Yeah. How impactful was that? So, you know, it could be an object. And so this was just making a statement in one single gesture with one real life um, object. Yeah. The power of that was immense. And what you're expecting a campaigner to do is to rant, mm. mm -hmm. right? What you're expecting a politician to do is to calm them down with rational words. We've spent this much money. Right? What you want the politician to do is to say, I care. 
I care. In fact, I went to bed last night and I was in tears when I thought about what you're talking about. Um, so to become a great public speaker, I think is to is to sort of go into your emotions and think about what you want to say and you will want to say something that means something to you. Yeah? Yeah. Um, so that you're, you're bringing to that your feelings. If you're just commenting on something, I mean, you, you'll know there are politicians that you think, I don't believe a word you're saying. Most of them. <laughs> yeah. Right, okay. You've got no empathy. You're not actually concerned at all. Um, but if people feel that you care about what you say, they will listen. Yeah. Then you look at the structure and you look at how to use stories. Stories are dynamite. Stories drive um, a performance. Stories, they're like songs, you know. Mm. They are hugely powerful. The story I told about Lebanon, the story about the woman with the bottle of the box of porridge oats. Mm. These stories are what really lands with people. So it's about giving of yourself. And if you can be in that story and you can talk from your heart, that's what matters to me. And I've seen a lot of public speaking courses that kind of skirt around that. It's all about the, the structure, the, the, the note taking, um, about the script. Mm. I think it's about the presence. I agree. I yeah. think it's about the presence. You can tell, especially in interviews, what I try to do is have subject lines, but I yeah. don't write strict questions. Because you want it to flow and you want to go a little bit deeper than the, you know, uh, mm. the, the standard questions. And that's when you know it's, a, it's been a good uh, conversation because you've actually had a conversation instead yes. of an interview. Um, yeah. I think that's really important. We have a closing tradition. It's brand new and you're the first one to experience it <laughs> on the podcast. And it's what is the most valuable lesson that you've ever learned in life? To never rate yourself by how others rate you. That's interesting. You have to, at some points in your life, you have to say, look, this is me. I know my value. Because if you're always depending on other people to set your value, mm. then you leave yourself very vulnerable to, to the market, for example. Mm -hmm. But also to to other people, you know, we have to be able to gauge our own value. Don't let other people do it. I like that. I like that. Well, listen, Mike, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. And driving in this weather as well, it must be mental. Oh, right. <laughs> was that good? Was that good? That, that was perfect. Thank you so much. Anna.